a Jesuit priest and a French philosopher, uh, Pierre Chardin, I think was his name, made an interesting uh, observation. He said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Tonight, as we continue exploring the parable of the sower, I want you to bear that thought in mind um, because it expresses, I think, a critical truth regarding the nature of life and our own nature and the uh, boy, sorry, the um, unique nature of our relationship with God in Christ. Let's uh, turn to Mark chapter four, please. As you're turning there, I'm going to pray. Father, we uh, once again are so thankful for this time together and. Lord, you are aware of every need that's represented here, uh, of every, every yearning, every desire, every challenge, and every need that exists in our lives. And right now we release to you all of our cares, Lord, all of our concerns. And we turn our thoughts toward you. And we pray that tonight we would experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised it. That he would teach us concerning uh, Jesus himself. That he would uh, make real to us Jesus. That we would have an encounter with him tonight. In his name we pray, amen. All right, Mark chapter 4, again, this parable, we've been examining it now for a number of weeks. Didn't realize it could take so long to read the parable of the sower, did you? Uh, Jesus uh, offers uh, this uh, parable to uh, the public at large, and then privately he explains it to the disciples. Again, the imperative here is hearing. Jesus said uh, at the outset of this parable, listen. And that was a general invitation to all who had gathered there. But at its conclusion, he said simply, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And so the, uh, the imperative here is hearing. Do we hear what God in Christ is speaking to us. Are our hearts receptive to his word? So that his word finds in our heart fertile soil in which it can sink its roots deeply, remain, and bear much fruit. We have been looking uh, uh, as of late at... Uh, Verse 18, the category of heart that we discover there, and others are ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, 
the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And I, I wanted you to note last week that this, this category of heart is unique in as much as the seed does not perish as it did in the first two. The seed was either plucked up or it withered away. In, in uh, this particular instance, the seed springs up, it grows. It does not perish. It does not wither away. It simply fails to do what? Bear fruit. I'm sorry, this cable keeps pulling this microphone away from me. Um, what I've done here. This is distracting you. <laughs> okay, maybe that fixed it. Um, and that's important, particularly if we want to consider uh, that Jesus is talking to those who would follow him. And he is identifying for our benefit the, the, uh, the things uh, which can intrude upon A, the reception of God's word, B, the retention of God's word, and C, the fruitfulness of God's word. And so that rather, and he's certainly not encouraging us to explore this as if it's a fait accompli. You, you are either good ground, you are either thorny ground, you are either stony ground, or you are so hard that the word is simply plucked up. He's not suggesting that at all. He is suggesting, I think, that first of all, these conditions can coexist simultaneously in our lives. There may be areas in which we are very receptive to God's word. We are quick to hear it, to receive it, and it easily yields fruit. There may be other areas because of, as I, as I stated before, perhaps ideas at work in our minds that are not consistent with the word of truth. They may uh, spring from the traditions of men. They may spring from the doctrines of men, uh, which are, are, are well-meaning, well-intentioned, but they are, in fact, not consistent with what is written in the truth, written in God's word. It may be pain in your life. There may be a certain indifference to the word of God in certain areas because of pain that you are experiencing. Um, Issues uh, at work in you that for whatever reason find you not as receptive to God's word as you might otherwise be. Whatever the case, there may be areas in your life in which you are simply not open to the word. And there Satan finds an opportunity to either uh, mitigate the effectiveness of the word or to neutralize it altogether. So as we go through this, remember, don't look at this and say, well, I'm half afraid I'm going to discover, I think I have it on the wrong side, I'm I'm half afraid I'm going to discover that um, my heart is is hard and and that I'm not not good soil. I'm, I'm frightened that that's what I might discover. No, we approach this with the intention of discovering areas in our lives which may not be as receptive 
to the word of God as they might otherwise be. And then apply the remedies that Jesus is suggesting are available to us. So we can approach this very confidently. We don't have to be frightened. Um, and, and I think we need to be open-minded enough to uh, imagine the very real possibility that there are areas of our lives in which we are very closed off to the Word of God. And we want to discover why, and we want to swing the doors wide open to those areas of our life so that God, through His Word and by His Spirit, can come in and do the things He yearns to do to allow redemption to flower in every area of our lives. Um, okay, so we looked last week at the... Um, uh, cares of this life or the worries of the world and and we're all familiar with those aren't we i mean they visit every life uh, and they range from um what's the word i'm looking for uh they range from matters uh that really are not very consequential to genuine crisis but Jesus explained that they enjoy the capacity to mitigate or entirely neutralize um, the effectiveness of God's word as it, as it uh, seeks to work in our lives. It can hinder the word from bearing fruit in our lives. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and we examined that. Uh, last week, so we don't need to spend a lot of time there, simply to say that covetousness is really the issue that Jesus is addressing. Uh, James wrote, or, or rather, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy that the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself isn't evil, but our attitudes concerning money can be evil. The love of money can find us compromising the things which we suggest matter most to us. The principles that we would otherwise adhere to, the, the ethics that we would otherwise embrace, we can find all of those being sacrificed because of the love of money. And Jesus made an interesting remark concerning money. He said that you will serve either God or mammon, or God and wealth, or, or wealth rather. That's a, that's a profound remark. He didn't say you will either serve um, uh, celebrity or God. You will either serve fame or God. You will either serve um, immorality or God. He, he, there was a host of things he could have inserted there, but instead he said you will either serve God or money, which suggests that money alone enjoys the capacity to so mimic God that we would worship it and devote ourselves to it and trust in it in the same fashion we would God. And so if you think about it for a moment, money really does have that capacity, doesn't it? Money seems to offer security, a sense of well-being, a sense of power, control over your life. It seems to afford us uh, an upgraded status among our fellows, doesn't it? Of course, it's deceitful. It, it doesn't. It actually doesn't provide any of those things. It suggests that it does, but it cannot. 
In fact, the more we trust in it, the more our lives are denuded of those very things. Uh, the less peaceful we are, uh, the, the less gracious and kind we can be. Jesus urged us to lay our treasures up in heaven where moth nor rust corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. And there are all sorts of thieves. Not just those, you know, who wear masks and hold weapons. Inflation can be a thief, can't it? Uh, a, a, uh, a declining stock market can be a thief. There are things that, that seem to take away our wealth. So Jesus said, look, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the warning here is simply that we come to view money uh, in a fashion that allows our trust to remain fully in God. And so Paul, in writing to Timothy, said, look, here are the things you want to communicate concerning wealth. Number one, don't become high-minded. Don't imagine money makes you better than those who have less than you. Number two, don't trust in the uncertainty of riches. Number three, be ready to give. And that's a big one. If you have it, you have it for a reason. Not to simply accumulate it, but to serve as a conduit through whom God can pour his blessings and touch a world in need. And, and so what he is suggesting is that covetousness is countered with contentment. Paul said, I have learned, uh, I know how both to be abased and to abound, to suffer want, to enjoy plenty, and, I've, and, and so I have learned uh, to trust in him. And there is a marvelous consistency to my life. I've discovered contentment. And in writing to Timothy, he said, uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. And so that's essentially his message concerning money. He, in fact, Paul said, look, God richly blesses us, richly blesses us with these things to enjoy. So he's not opposed to you having things. He's not opposed to you having wealth. He is opposed to, to things and wealth having you being controlled and dominated by them and finally the lust of other things now to explore this a little further let's turn to first john the second chapter because uh, these are are largely encapsulated in it remarks that uh, john made first john the second chapter that's at the back of the bible back where the pages are stuck together 1 John, the second chapter. Let's begin with verse 15. Do not love the world. Now, what, what does he mean by world? Think about cosmos. Think world system. Think of the values and, uh, uh, um, the values and perspectives of a system hostile toward God. 
This is a system whose overlord is Satan, the adversary. And it is a system hostile, hostile, at war with God. It is not friendly toward God, toward uh, the ideas uh, and the principles which animate his kingdom. It is hostile toward them. And so we are urged here, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now he is, he's just made a, a uh, dramatic statement. All that is in the world, he is about to provide for us three elements that uh, are emblematic of all that is in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh, that's the cravings and desires of the flesh. Now, I want to ask you something. Is desire in and of itself wrong? or evil, or inherently sinful. No. Is eating sinful? Is, is being hungry sinful? No. It's actually an important impulse. It finds us seeking nutrition, which our bodies require. Gluttony, on the other hand, overeating is a sin. And why is it a sin? Remember, and, and I really want you to, to, to wrestle with this definition because it, it may challenge some of your thoughts regarding sin. But in my mind, sin exists as those things which are ultimately harmful to us. God has not identified as sinful the things which are just too much darn fun. As if God is out to somehow curtail our pleasure. Hey, hey, hey! Don't, don't, uh-uh. You're having way too much fun over there. I'm going to call that wrong. I'm just going to call that a sin from now on. No. Eating is fun. It's enjoyable. I enjoy, Beth and I enjoy cooking. We enjoy hanging out together in the kitchen. Now, I enjoyed cooking and eating a little too much. Uh, and, it, and I put on weight over the years. And, and thank God by His grace that I was able to drop, I've dropped 80 pounds. I was, uh, I look back at the pictures and I'm like, I look like a silverback gorilla or something wandering <laughs> through my house. <laughs> it was embarrassing. It happened in five years, just sitting in front of the computer. I'd taken a new position and I was in front of it for about 60 hours a week. And it, I, I was just astounded. My metabolism started slowing as my appetite was increasing. <laughs> so what was I engaging in? Well, I was overeating, which is a sin. Well, that sounds kind of legalistic, Larry. It's not, though. Gluttony is a sin. Why is it a sin? It's harmful. It's harmful to you. Is sex a sin? No, sex is a gift from God. I can't sing highly enough its praises. <laughs> it is a gift from God. Within the constraints, he's designed it to be a blessing within. Which is an institution we call marriage. 
And it is a wonderful blessing. It is a, it is a wonderful pleasure bond between a husband and a wife who have covenanted to spend their lives together. And it's necessary for the uh, perpetuation of the human race. It's, we procreate, we create life through that. So it's a necessary thing as well. It is a blessing within its proper constraints. We allow it to move beyond that, and it's harmful. So it's called a what? A sin. Because why? Ultimately, it is harmful to us. It's a blessing, but it can become a sin when we allow the desire or the craving to suddenly lord it over our lives, to drive behaviors rather than to simply serve its initial purpose and to provide pleasure. Eating is pleasurable, isn't it? Sleeping is pleasurable, but can sleeping become sloth? Absolutely. Um, a, a desire that, that functions within the parameters, within the constraints that God has designed it to function within, they are a blessing. They are a joy. They are a gift. If we allow them, however, to um, explode beyond those constraints, they suddenly turn into a curse. They do harm to ourselves. They can do harm to others. And so they're called to sin. And so he it says here, in describing the three elements that, that make up this world system, the lust of the flesh. Now, this is not simply desire. This is desire run amok. This is desire that is not functioning under the lordship of Christ. It has escaped those bonds, uh, and, it, and, and it has abandoned grace, and it now works, frankly, to do harm rather than to do good. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Now, this is really covetousness. We see something and we want it. I must have that. And I won't be happy without it. And covetousness, of course, becomes uh, particularly harmful when we allow it to... Uh, drive behaviors harmful to others. We covet what someone else has and we are perfectly willing to strip them of it so that we might have it. And then uh, finally, what, what else? The pride of life. And, and that is simply, uh, it, is the, it is the pride or the self-assurance that I, I have everything I need and I need nothing else from anyone. I am perfectly self-sufficient. You'll recall in, in Revelation, in fact, let's turn there, please. I think it's Revelation. Uh, this is not in my notes, but I think it's Revelation 3, maybe 17. Let's take a peek there. Because this whole uh, line of, of reasoning is, is really assaulted by Jesus in his message to the church. Yes, uh, uh, Revelation 3.17, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. So it is an arrogant haughtiness that pretends that it needs nothing from God. Uh, this is the love of the world. Now, what does it sound like? Does it sound, uh, do any of those sound familiar in a particular narrative that uh, we have probably all heard since we were children? Look, look with me at Genesis, the third chapter, please. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Now, this is the thief coming to steal away the word which was sown. So he has now made a statement which exists in full contradiction to the truth, to what God has declared. It is, it is a blatant lie stated with stunning ease. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will, will be open and you will be like God. Follow his argument, knowing good and evil. Now, now, she's listened to this. She has entertained it. And I want you to see what is suddenly awakened within her. We just spoke about desires. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, I think verse 23, we read about lying desires or deceitful lusts. These are the desires that tell you you are incomplete. And so in order to be complete, in order to have everything you yearn for, everything you deserve, you need to do this, or you must have this, despite the fact that we read in Colossians, we are complete in Him. We are complete in Him. And so because she has listened to this, this lie has actually begun to appeal to these desires which she has, and it is urging them to uh, break their chains, to abandon these constraints. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. Those are the three things, really, John just addressed, isn't it? The lust of the eyes, or the, the um, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, I want you to, uh, and, and this is the meat of what I actually want to get to tonight. What do all three of these things have in common? And I'm not going to answer this right now. Um, I want us as a group to think this through for a moment. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts or desires of other things. What do all three of those 
as it pertains particularly to God and His Word at work in us, our relationship with God in Christ, what do all three of those have in common? There is a common thread that flows through each of those. Well, you could say idolatry in part, but I'm looking for another answer. And your answer must be in the form of a question. <laughs> you watch it, Jeffrey. <laughs> um, um, okay, I'm going to give you a hint. Recall the uh, Jesuit priest Chardin's uh, remarks at the beginning. I quoted at the beginning of tonight's lesson. We are... Not humans having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Adam and Eve began life in the garden where they walked each day with God. Following the fall, things changed radically. It was a tragedy you and I really cannot, I think, fully grasp um, the experience that must have been theirs when the fall occurred. They fell from their first estate. Life would never, never, never be the same. What was the first thing that Adam and Eve became aware of following? Uh, they were naked. Well, I mean, you may be comfortable. You may not be at all inhibited. Inhibited. You may be very comfortable in your body. But I rather doubt that most of us would be entirely unaware that we were naked if we were walking around without any clothes. They were suddenly aware of their nakedness. And when they heard the voice of God, they fled to hide from him among the trees. What had happened? How, how could their nakedness have escaped their attention, do you suppose? I don't think that had anything to do with it. They were far more aware of spiritual reality than they were of physical reality. God, Jesus said in, in John chapter 4, is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is immutable. He's unchanging. So God didn't change after the fall. Who changed after the fall? Man did. And I want you to consider this. They walked with him and communed with him in the garden each day. The reality of God, the invisible God, the reality of his kingdom, spiritual reality was reality. It dominated their lives. It controlled their perspectives. Following the fall, they became increasingly carnal. They became less spiritually aware and more physically aware. So much so that within just a few generations, how did they answer this yearning to worship God? What was their response to that yearning? They couldn't see him. They could no longer perceive him. Generations had passed, so what did they begin doing? Fashioning gods from stone and wood and metal. They had to have a god they could see. 
Theirs, their world became restricted to physical reality, to physical phenomena. Spiritual reality was no longer reality. And, and uh, in its place, mystery sprang up. And mystery encouraged superstition. But spiritual reality no longer dominated their lives or their sense of reality. These, what do those, these th three things have in common? They are distractions. They distract us or they seek to distract us from the reality that is God. When you're here on a Sunday morning and, and you're worshiping the Lord, isn't it a marvelous experience? You, you, you're aware of the presence of God and his reality. He seems so near and so real. But the week is coming, and you may find yourself suddenly in the week thrust into the midst of a real challenge, a problem. And God seems a million miles away. The world gets smaller. Impossibilities, rather than possibilities, uh, seem to come into view and, and, and shrink uh, your vision of what's possible. The love of money has the same impact. It distracts us from the reality that is God. Suddenly we imagine that somehow the things our hearts truly yearn for are to be found in money rather than in God and the lust of other things. They are all distractions. Wor Satan is working to draw our attention away from the reality that is God, the reality that is his kingdom, which demands if we are to allow it to uh, dominate our lives, we must intentionally turn our thoughts toward him. We must intentionally turn our thoughts toward the reality of that kingdom. Um, we might explore this a little more next week because there's, uh, there's really more to cover here, but I, I don't want to go uh, much further. So let's, um, I want you to, hmm. All right, you just write this down and remember Colossians, the third chapter, urges us to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.18 said that we are to, he said, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, he said, are temporal, subject to change. The things which are not seen are eternal. John, in 1 John, the second chapter, he urged us uh, to remember that these things that would uh, beckon our attention from God to things earthly, he said, it's all passing away. It's not eternal. If we want stability, then our lives need to be anchored to things eternal. Um, let's look, uh, let's go ahead and close with Hebrews chapter 12, please. Hebrews chapter 12. 
So what is it that Satan is trying to do to mitigate the effect of God's word in the lives of Christians? Because remember, the seed did not perish in this third category of hearts. It's people who, who have embraced the lordship of Christ, but they're struggling. The word is not yielding fruit in their lives. They are enduring um, the effects and impact of repeated and continual distractions. Turning their attention from the God who cares, the God who loves them, the God who has redeemed them, and trying to draw their attention to, uh, to natural things, to earthly things, to carnal things. And in effect, closing those doors to God so that he is not able to do the work in our lives that he earns to do. Hebrews 12, uh, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, and say this with me, and these sin, these sin, this is very specific. There is the sin which does so easily beset us or so easily entangles us. There is a sin, a particular sin, which easily besets. That easily besets. It is that sin which draws our attention away from the reality that is God. Discouragement that turns our, our thoughts and our focus and our attention from the reality is God, uh, that is God and, and allows it to be convinced uh, that, po that po all possibilities that exist exist within these four dimensions and, and that uh, there is no help beyond them. There is no remedy beyond them. There is no power beyond what is available to us in these four simple dimensions. It tries to return us to a place Paul said we were rescued from in Ephesians, the second chapter. He said we were without hope and without God in the world. And, and uh, these distractions seek to impose that, that uh, same lifestyle and that same mindset upon our lives, being without hope and without God in the world. Uh, verse... Uh, Verse 2, or excuse me, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Doing what? Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Doing just what Peter failed to do when Jesus uh, urged him to step out of the boat. Peter said, if it's you, bid me come to thee on the water. Jesus had strolled out on the water to meet them uh, as they were struggling against the winds rowing the boat. And Peter said, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he began to walk on the water. But he allowed his attention to uh, move from Christ, who is the author and developer of our faith, to the winds and the waves. Things natural began to obscure things supernatural. Things physical began to obscure the, rea the spiritual reality that is Christ. And his attention was so easily diverted. And we say, how could he ever have done that? I would never have done that. And yet we do the same thing repeatedly. 
we can we count our own lives. Here we're being urged. Turn or, or, or keep your attention on him. Look unto Jesus. And guys, that's the important thing. I was talking with someone this week. They were uh, wanting prayer regarding a certain matter. And I, I, I explained to them, we're not the promises of God. We look too often to the Bible as if it's a contract. Rather than a heap of promises that express the love of God toward us. Our faith comes from knowing Jesus is with us. Present now with us. And ready to, ready to minister life to us in whatever situation or circumstance we may find ourselves in. Our attention is on the person of Jesus Christ. Not simply as a figure of history or literature, but as a living reality. The eternal now. How do we do that? We just turn our thoughts toward Him. James said in James 4, 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That is the source of your faith, the nearness of God. I will not fear what man shall do unto me, the psalmist declared, for you are with me. Paul wrote, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. He's present with you. When you draw near to God, He draws near to you. He literally draws near to you. He fills you and the space around you with His holy presence. And faith comes alive in that environment. How do we draw near to Him? It's as simple as turning your thoughts toward Him. It's that simple. Turning your thoughts toward Him and breathing praises to him. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Lord. It doesn't have to be any more elaborate than that. It's not complicated. It's the language of lovers. I love Jesus and he loves me. Father, we're so um, grateful to know that you love us so. I pray that you cause this word to come alive in our hearts as we... Uh, as we consider it, we invite your ministry, Holy Spirit, to give us understanding, to make this word come alive to us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope that was helpful for you tonight. have given you some things to think about. And uh, now...